0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, August 4th, we are studying Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 22. In today's text, Jeremiah speaks the Lord's word to the foreign nations of Ammon and Edom. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today. We have with us regular guest, Pastor Clint Poppy. Pastor Poppy serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pastor Poppy, welcome back to Sharp Iron.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Tim. It's always a great honor.
0: So we are in Jeremiah chapter forty-nine today, Pastor Poppy, in the middle of this section, oracles to foreign nations, sometimes is is what it's called. What, in terms of the context, what we're going to see today? What should we know going into these these two sections we're looking at today?
1: Well, the last chapters of Jeremiah 40, 46 through 52, uh, This is uh, these are the prophecies of the oracles against the nations. I know sometimes we, uh, we may get kind of bogged down, the names and the places aren't familiar, and uh, we might have a difficult time connecting that to our situation. But imagine if you would, you're standing there and uh, someone is telling you, that all of your enemies are going to get wiped out. And they start with some of the smaller ones, and it just escalates. And your, your bigger enemies, your greater enemies are getting wiped out. And every time you hear one, uh, you feel pretty good. And, uh, oh, that enemy's going to get it. And, oh, that enemy's going to get it. Oh, man, that enemy's going to get it. And you're feeling, you're feeling really good, and you're feeling really secure. And then you get to chapter 52, and you realize that as God is wiping out all of his enemies, that uh, you too are an enemy of God because of your sin. And so Isaiah does this, Jeremiah does this, and uh, God is setting the stage beautifully for us to examine ourselves, and for us to realize that we, too, have sinned and sinned grievously against the Lord. We are deserving of his wrath and punishment, and his call for repentance is not just for the nations. It's for me. In uh, chapter 48, we have um, one of those enemies that's uh, being destroyed, Moab, and uh, in the destruction of Moab, uh, the destruction is sudden. The destruction is complete. Uh, Moab's glory in itself is turned to shame. We see the, uh, the pride and fall, not of the Third Reich, but of
0: Moab.
1: And uh, it's, it's worthy of a, of a dirge and a lament uh, toward the end of the chapter. The destruction that's coming is inescapable. And then the last verse of chapter 48 gives hope. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. The, uh, the gospel promise, the promise of salvation in the latter days, something is coming something is coming, and we know that something is the Messiah, we know that something is the incarnation, we know that something is Jesus, and uh, in the midst of all of this talk of uh, destruction and damnation, we know that even the descendants of Moab are among the elect of God. God knows who and where, and these individuals that will have eternal life through the bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus. And that gives the people of Moab hope, and that gives us hope as well.
0: I appreciate the way that you laid out these last couple of chapters. As I've been thinking about them so far, you know, chapter 50 50 and 51 both deal with Babylon, almost like a climax within these various oracles against foreign nations. But the way that you you set up then with chapter 52 as reminding us again of the fall of Jerusalem— which we've already heard in the book of Jeremiah once, and we're going to get again at the end. I, I think there is a that, that's a, a good reminder that all of these judgments against the foreign nations aren't so that Judah can simply say, ha-ha, look, you got yours, but rather that they too would remember the reason that they need to repent as well. And I, I think, you know, at the same time, we could say the reverse is true for these foreign nations. The foreign nations, particularly Babylon, who, again, we'll get to in a, a couple chapters, uh, particularly Babylon— could get the idea that oh look we're better than judah because we're getting to destroy them and and any of these foreign nations you know many of them have a history of enmity with israel any of them could look upon judah and israel in their destruction and say ha ha almost like you know your your brothers watching you get in trouble from from your parents they could have that temptation as well and and the message of all these chapters put together is the lord is judge over all people all will be held accountable for their sin but then as you said also, salvation is given to all only through Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah, that's that's very well put, and uh, the the chapters oh in the mid to late twenties of Isaiah do this same thing, and uh, it it sets it up sets it up beautifully, and uh, there are several other places in Scripture, especially in the book of Obadiah. Uh, which is one of those, you know, for most people, kind of a throwaway book, that um, uh, when we get to Moab here in a few verses, that uh, Moab was feeling really secure because they were standing tall and the people of God, the children of Israel, had been destroyed, not realizing that they were just simply a tool or an instrument in God's hand, and theirs was coming. The the, uh, complaint of Habakkuk, is uh, this very thing, you know, how how can you allow the nations to do what they're doing when they are worse in their sin than the people of Judah or the people of Israel? And God basically says, just wait, just wait,
0: there's this coming. That's right. The The two foreign nations that we're going to be talking about today are Ammon, the Ammonites, we'll hear in 49, verse 1, and then Edom in verse 7. In terms of what we know about them from Scripture, how they interact with, with Israel, some of that background, what, what should we know about these two groups uh, before we read what Jeremiah has to say to them here?
1: Well, there is a uh, uh, a war... That uh, takes place uh, 740 to 732, uh, sometimes called the uh, Syrian Ephraimite War, and this is kind of a a gradual infiltration and subjugation of the people of God, and so these uh, Ammonites are coming in slowly at first, and then more rapidly, and the children of God are carried away they're carried off into captivity and uh the the names of pole and uh and sargon these uh, these all kind of come to a climax in uh uh 722 bc there are several places that that talk about this particular geographical area the uh trans jordan plain uh th- this is israel's territory and it's given to them uh numbers 21 and numbers 32 talks about how this particular ground is given to the children of israel and it is slowly methodically and finally completely taken away from the children of israel and inhabited by the Ammonites.
0: Yeah, the, the people of Ammon have, a, a generally speaking, a very a hostile relationship with the people of, of Israel. It's probably worth r- reminding ourselves, too, that like the Moabites in the previous chapter, the Ammonites, are, they trace their descendancy to, to Lot. They go back to, to Lot, just like the Moabites. So again, we're dealing with relatives of the people of Israel here in this first oracle, which is Jeremiah 49, verses 1 to 6. So let's go ahead and, and take a look at the text. Concerning the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, Has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then has Milcom dispossessed Gad, and his people settled in its cities? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will cause the battle cry to be heard against Rabbah of the Ammonites. It shall become a desolate mound, and its villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall dispossess those who dispossessed him, says the Lord. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is laid waste. Cry out, O daughters of Rabbah. Put on sackcloth, lament, and run to and fro among the hedges. For Milcom shall go into exile with his priests and his officials. Why do you boast of your valleys, O faithless daughter, who trusted in her treasures, saying, Who will come against me? Behold, I will bring terror upon you, declares the Lord God of hosts, from all who are around you. And you shall be driven out, every man straight before him, with none to gather the fugitives. But afterward I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. That's a Jeremiah 49, verses 1 to 6, the oracle to Ammon. Pastor, probably the, the first thing that we should probably deal with is this name, Milcom, that shows up in verse 1, and again in verse, where was it? I can't remember. Later in the text as well, who's Milcom? Verse 3. Verse 3, thank verse you, three. thank you. Who's Milcom?
1: Uh, Milcom is a, another name or a sister name or a parallel name for Molech. And uh, Molech is the, uh, the predominant god of the Ammonites. Uh, Molech is uh, a uh, wicked and cruel god that demands child sacrifice. And there, there are many today that would um, equate Moloch or Molech worship with uh, the uh, horror of abortion, not only in our country, but uh, throughout the world, uh, demanding child sacrifice in order to appease the gods or be successful in your life. So, so that, um, that Milcom is just another name for Molech. Mm
0: right and and well known as you said for that child sacrifice and and when we use that today i think that you know rightly rightly applied to consider uh, the the horror of abortion as a and it's an example of that sort of idolatry today and again that idolatry is in view here just like we've seen it throughout these oracles it's amazing how often jeremiah brings up in the word of the lord that he he speaks against the false gods of these various nations, and Ammon is no exception with Milcom. In terms of, of what this these first couple of verses tell us, Pastor Poppy, it sounds like what you were laying out in terms of the context and the background of some of that uh, war that happened in the 700s BC, th- it sounds like this is the Lord reminding Ammon, telling them, look, you took this territory from Israel, and now it's going to be taken away from you. Is, is that that war that you were mentioning, that's part of the background that's going on here in these first couple of verses? Yeah, that,
1: that's an important part of the background because, uh, you know, has Israel no sons? Uh, has he no heir? Well, all the sons have been carried off. Uh, they've been uh, deported, the northern tribes deported to Assyria, and uh, it's it's just the dregs of society that are left. And it's, it's bad enough that uh, the children of Israel have been carried off into captivity. But the Ammonites, as they possess this land, have been especially cruel. Uh, the book of Amos, Amos 1.13, talks about the cruelty of the Ammonites. And uh, Jeremiah 40 um, mentions the cruelty of the Ammonites as well. So they, they took away the sons of Israel They are now inhabiting the lands, they are worshipping the god of Molech, and uh, along with that comes just unspeakable cruelty to the few people that are left.
0: And so the Lord promises in verse 2 that the days are coming, declares the Lord, which is a pretty loaded phrase when we encounter in the prophets, I think. The days are coming.
1: Yeah, whenever whenever you have phrases like that, uh, the days are coming— um, uh, the uh, the fearful day of the Lord. Whenever whenever this phraseology is used, this is judgment day talk. And uh, you know, with with prophetic perspective, and that's a that's a, a wonderful term that uh, Doctor Robbie at the uh, St. Louis Seminary is, uh, is just wonderful in uh, teaching. You know, when you're driving down the highway and you see things off in the distance. Uh, Here in Nebraska, you drive down I-80 West, and you're heading to Colorado, and all of a sudden you see the mountains, and they look like they're just a few miles away. And you drive for a couple of hours, and they still look like they're a few miles away. You're getting closer, but you don't know how close you are. Uh, That's the prophetic perspective that goes on uh, in all of Scripture, but especially in the Old Testament. The days are coming. Now, are these days referring to the immediate fall of Ammon that uh, Jeremiah is predicting? Are they uh, pointing forward to the day of uh, the incarnation of the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ? Are they pointing forward to the judgment that takes place on Calvary as God pours out his wrath on his own son? Are they talking about the day of final judgment at the end of the world? Uh, And the answer is yes, It's all of those things in the proper timeline, in the proper prophetic perspective that God lays before us. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. Yeah, the the way that these—that's another connection that we can make from these oracles against the foreign nations is how in the judgment that God— says is coming to them, we see a picture in miniature of the judgment that comes to, to all people, judgment day, as you said, the, the day of the Lord, you know, when we see that phrase that the days are coming or in the latter days, all, all of these point us forward to that final day, to that judgment day. And then, as a reminder, also how all of that judgment was poured out on Christ. On the day of the Lord, that was Good Friday as well. So I mean, you know, phrases like that when we when we encounter texts like this, and sometimes we scratch our heads, like, "Well, what do I do with that?" That's another place, another connection that we can make as we read, you know, the the whole of the scriptures, doing what we might call biblical theology, trying to connect those pieces. That's another connection we can make.
1: Amen. Amen. And uh, uh, to to study the history, to study the isagogics to do some cross-referencing. Those are, those are all wonderful ways to approach the Scriptures, but Christians read the Scripture in light of the promised Savior who kept his promise and uh, lived, died, rose again. And Good Friday is Judgment Day, and we, we tend to think only of Judgment Day as the end of the world. Uh, judge, judgment Day has already come in one respect, as uh, God pours out His wrath on His own Son. And when we, when we see that, that, that really opens up these sections of Scriptures in a way that is close to people who don't believe in Christ.
0: As we continue looking through this text, we encounter some of those, you know, more names. Heshbon, we've got Rabbah. All of it is is described in terms of the mourning that's going to be happening, and ultimately this talk of exile as well at the end of verse 3, where the false god, Molech Milcom, he's going to go into exile, along with those who worship him and those who lead the worship of him. What do you see there in the next couple of verses, 3 and 4, Pastor Bobby?
1: Well, uh, Rabbah is the capital city of uh, Ammon. And uh, because of the mother-daughter talk here, um, you know, the capital city is kind of like the mother city of all the other cities in the country, and God is going to avenge. And in fact, in these verses, there's a great reversal theme. It's always throughout the book of Jeremiah, but this great reversal. You carried off the the captives into captivity. You drove... The children of Israel into exile, and now what you did is going to come back on you. The days are coming, and uh, your great city, uh, Raba, is going to be uh, a big mound of dirt. A um, uh, the uh, Hebrew word for that is tell, and that's what the archaeologists to this day dig in. They find a tell, and they start digging down into uh, into the. Layers to uh, discover history. Uh, Heshbon is uh, a a royal city of the Ammonites, and um, uh, it was taken uh, of the Amorites, and it was taken over by Amnon. Um, It was known for its strong, sturdy, and majestic walls. And the people are trusting in their walls, just like the people in Constantinople did uh, before the uh, Turks took over. But uh, they were trusting in their security, trusting in their walls. And Jeremiah, um, speaking for God, says, they're not going to do you any good. You're going to be carried away. And in fact, not only are you going to be carried away, but this God you think is so powerful He's going to be carried away, along with all of his priests and all of your false
0: worship. Yeah, we see an example of, of, again, the Lord mocking the idols. This happens regularly in the Scriptures, where the idols are shown to have no power. And in this case, it is because, you know, Milcom Molech is going to actually be taken off into exile. He cannot stop that from happening, because he is not truly a god. Into the next couple of verses, verses 4 and 5, we, we see, particularly in verse 4, a bit of the pride that's there in Ammon. They, they were saying, who will come against me? This matter of, of pride, of the the pride of the nations, I think is a recurring theme in these chapters of, of Jeremiah, and Ammon is no exception. They're going to be judged even though they thought, I'm good, nobody can hurt me. In fact, they're going to find out, no, you too are going to be judged.
1: They have, uh, they have their strength in their economy and in their security system, they, uh, they have fertile valleys. They have all kinds of uh, food and all the uh, delicacies that come along with this. The uh, export of food means the uh, treasury is full again, and they are so full of themselves and trusting in these material goods and outward things that uh, they have no clue that uh, – they are anything other than invincible, and so their pride and their boasting, uh, God is uh, God is going to take care of that. They um, they boasted in um, all of their riches, and when we put our faith and trust in riches, what do we have no need for? We have no need for God. Uh, they considered themselves invincible, and God is going to prove otherwise.
0: Well, I mean, the way you put it there, you know, they trusted in their riches and had no room for God. It reminds me a lot of where Jesus talks in Luke 12 of the the rich man who, you know, tore down his barns and built bigger ones and said to himself, I'm going to eat, drink and be merry. And and God comes and says, fool, your life is going to be demanded of you tomorrow. It's, I mean, that's almost what God does here to the Ammonites in verse five. They say, who's going to come against me? And the Lord says, I will, I'll bring the terror. And and it's going to affect all of you Ammonites.
1: Yes, and uh, the Ammonites put fear into the heart of everybody that they attacked and uh, as they were uh, dishing out their cruelty. And now that fear is going to be flipped around. They're going to be driven out, and they're the ones that are going to be filled with fear. Um, They'll be driven out, every man straight before him, with none to gather the fugitives. Their destruction will be complete.
0: But then there's that promise. Verse 6, afterward I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, which sounds a lot like, I think you brought this out at the beginning, that there was a promise at the end of the judgment against the Moabites that their fortunes would be restored. Take us into that promise that the Lord makes in verse 6.
1: It is it is exactly the same promise that I talked about before in chapter 48, verse 47. Uh, there it was uh, it was applied to the um, uh, to the Moabites and here it's applied to the Ammonites. Uh, God is a God of grace. He gives fair warning. He gives fair warning that judgment day is coming and, uh, people that are caught up in it. Um, God promises that, uh, that there will be a type of a remnant. Uh, there, there will be a time in the future and, uh, People will have the opportunity to believe and to be saved. This is uh, this is not some eternal judgment decree. Salvation is for all.
0: So, is is this this verse when we think about it, is this another one of those places where we should think about that prophetic perspective that we may see the fortunes of Ammon be restored in a you know historical, maybe economic or a political sense to a degree but ultimately a verse like this is, is pointing us forward finally to the salvation that is for all people in Christ?
1: Yes, the uh, the word afterward is uh, uh, similar to the days are coming. Uh, well, after the coming days, uh, that same prophetic perspective is there. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the descendants of the Ammonites, uh, although you can't point to a a particular nation or region or ethnic people group, uh, the descendants of the Ammonites, the gospel is for them.
0: So verses 1 through 6 again of Jeremiah 49, this is the word of the Lord to Ammon... In verse 7, we're going to begin to hear the word of the Lord to Edom. And we've got just a couple minutes here before the break, Pastor Poppy. So we'll read the text on the other side, but as a way of introduction, we're talking about the nation of Edom. What's the historical background, context on that nation that we need to know before we read this text?
1: Well, Edom, when you, when you, whenever you see Edom, uh, you know, it, it technically means red, uh, but uh, it is in reference to Esau and uh, you know the battle between jacob and esau the two twins in their mother's womb that were fighting and uh, we have the scripture passages uh, god loved jacob and he hated esau we have uh, esau's descendants are the edomites and the uh, the the neat thing about esau was, uh, according to Genesis, it appears that uh, Esau repented of his hatred and his sin against Jacob and against the Lord. But sadly, his jealousy and hatred for Jacob that he repented of, he passed on to his descendants in some way, shape, or form. Edom is a huge, huge land land. Um, it controlled the trade routes, the, uh, the famous King's Highway from Aqaba to Damascus. And it was known because of the mountainous areas. It had many caves, iron and copper mines. It was um, a very, very rich and powerful uh, land, and it controlled a lot of things and uh, very, very powerful, and very, very prominent in other places in Scripture as well.
0: That is the nation of Edom, and the Lord has a word for them too, and we're going to pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Jeremiah chapter 49 with Pastor Poppy. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, August 4th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 22 with Pastor Clint Poppy. He serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pastor Poppy, prior to the break, we were talking about the judgment first against Ammon, and then we introduced Edom, it goes back to the relationship Jacob and Esau, the descendants of Esau, that's the nation of Edom, an important nation in the Old Testament, often at enmity with the people of Israel, and here the Lord has a word for them as well. So we're picking up the text in Jeremiah 49, verse 7. Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, Is wisdom no more in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan. For I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him, the time when I punish him. If grape-gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? If thieves came by night, would they not destroy only enough for themselves? But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places, and he is not able to conceal himself. His children are destroyed, and his brothers and his neighbors, and he is no more. Leave your fatherless children, I will keep them alive, and let your widows trust in me. For thus says the Lord, if those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra shall become a horror, a taunt, a waste, and a curse, and all her cities shall be perpetual wastes. I have heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations. Gather yourselves together and come against her, and rise up for battle. For behold, I will make you small among the nations, despised among mankind. The horror you inspire has deceived you, and the pride of your heart, you who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill. Though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. Edom shall become a horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its disasters. As when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities were overthrown, says the Lord, no man shall dwell there, no man shall sojourn in her. Behold, like a lion coming up from the jungle of the Jordan against a perennial pasture, I will suddenly make him run away from her, and I will appoint over her whomever I choose. For who is like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? Therefore hear the plan that the Lord has made against Edom, and the purposes that he has formed formed against the inhabitants of Teman. Even the little ones of the flock shall be dragged away. Surely their fold shall be appalled at their fate. At the sound of their fall the earth shall tremble. The sound of their cry shall be heard at the Red Sea. Behold, one shall mount up and fly swiftly like an eagle, and spread his wings against Basra. And the heart of the warriors of Edom shall be in that day like the heart of a woman in her birth pains. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Jeremiah 49, verses 7 to 22, the word of the Lord against Edom. Right, so, Pastor Poppy, in that first verse against Edom, one of the things that comes out really clearly is this matter of wisdom, and the Lord says, where did it go? Where did your wisdom go? What do we see in verse 7 as the Lord begins to speak
1: to Yeah, it Edom? sounds like a 60s song, yeah. Where did your love go? Where did your wisdom <laughs> go? Um, well, Teman is the uh, firstborn grandson of, of Esau. And Teman is a real person, and yet Teman is also representative of the people of Edom. Um, the Edomites, and especially Teman and his descendants, were known for their wisdom. It's uh, referenced in uh, Obadiah, verse 8. It's referenced in Job 4, verse 1. And this uh, wisdom that is departed, you know, we're reminded of the words that say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, people put, take pride in their wisdom and uh, their, their intelligence and their way to outthink their foes or to outthink their, their business competitors. And one of the things that is striking, that whenever God is preparing to destroy a nation— one of the first things that he does is he removes their wisdom. In other words, he makes them stupid. And this is a sign, uh, kind of a warning sign, but a sign of coming and impending destruction. If uh, you, you, you have to make the connections to many of the things that we see going on in our world today. Uh, how many genders are there? Uh, Should a boy be a girl or a girl be a boy? Uh, Is marriage for a man and a woman? Or should we have two men or two women or uh, two men and a woman? You know, all of these things that are just so contrary to reason and logic, natural law, and quite frankly, wisdom. We see these things disappearing and dissipating in our land today. And, from Jeremiah 49, verses uh, 7 and following, this should be a wake-up call for us right here and right now.
0: Well, and, and particularly to return to the wisdom that, that you rightly pointed out, this was the verse that was going through my mind as well, Proverbs 1, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that all this you know, utter foolishness, ultimately it goes back to the fact that we've forsaken the fear of the Lord. Anytime we, we lose know, earthly wisdom, that's all usually a good sign that, that that true wisdom, that fear of the Lord has gone by the wayside. And, and certainly that would have been the case in in Edom. And and again, as you pointed out at the very beginning, Judah, in hearing of this, the people of God, in hearing this, ought to take the time and look at their own lives. Where have, have we lost wisdom? Where do we need to repent, lest destruction fall upon us? And, and I, yeah, I think, you know, in terms of what you're saying about the, like, God taking away wisdom... How, how often in the Scriptures, and in our lives today, do we see that when we forsake wisdom, that God simply lets us have it our way, and he shows us what the fruit is when we forsake his word and his wisdom. He lets it go the way that it's bound to go, and when we go against the way that he's designed, his wisdom, then it's, it's bound to fail, and it's bound to fail uh, often in very ugly, ugly ways.
1: And because of the mercy of God, even when that happens, he promises to be there to pick us up when we fall or to deliver us from the destruction we've created for ourselves. When, uh, when the Pharaoh and all of his horses and chariots uh, followed into the Red Sea, uh, he, he threw them into confusion. Uh, in other words, he took away their wisdom. They didn't know which way they were going. Uh, they're stuck in the mud. Uh, how do we get loose? And then the waters come crashing down. Yeah, this this is a theme all the way throughout Scripture.
0: Mm. Uh, let's continue through the text. Pharaoh was the one that came to my mind as well. In, in verse 8, you see the Lord, you know, even as he's giving this judgment, he's giving His these people in Edom fair warning. He's telling them, look, get out of here before this happens. And, and he mentions the inhabitants of, of Dedan. I don't know if I'm pronouncing these things right, Pastor Poppy. Tell, tell us about verse 8.
1: Well, Dedan, or Dedan, I'm not, I'm not sure how to pronounce it either, <laughs> uh, is the uh, grandson of Abraham and Keturah, a very, very obscure name in Scripture. And he's connected to the Midianites. And Midian is way, way, way to the south of Edom. So he's basically saying, run for the hills, get out of here, get as far away to the south, go to a different country. Uh, try to flee and escape. God gives fair warning. Um, uh, his judgment may seem quick and unexpected, but it never is. Just like how the floodwaters seem sudden and unexpected when the rain came from above and the waters opened up from below with Noah. There had been nearly a hundred years of faithful preaching by Noah before that happened. God always gives fair warning. And that's the nature of God who desires no one to perish, but all to come to a saving knowledge of the truth.
0: that's why he gives the warning in the first place, is so that he he would relent of that disaster. That's why, I mean, the book of Jeremiah is there for the people— of Judah to repent so that God then would be gracious to them. I mean, this this is a theme that we see throughout the scriptures, and especially in Jeremiah. In verses 9 and 10, Pastor Pop, you get a pretty stark image. Uh, the Lord brings up, you know, let, let's imagine that, that you've got some grape gatherers, and they came to you, Edom. They'd leave a few grapes behind, and even if some thieves came, they would only take what they wanted. They wouldn't take necessarily everything. But then the Lord says, but I've stripped you bare. It's a, a pretty pretty stark comparison the Lord makes there with what he's going to do to Edom.
1: Yeah, this, is, this, this was what Edom was known for. Uh, when they came in, they were like locusts, and they destroyed everybody and everything. And, you know, God's Word is clear. It commands that when you harvest the grapes, you leave a few. When you harvest the wheat, you leave... Some of the grain behind. This is how God provides for widows and orphans and aliens, and uh, He's using this against them. It's it's almost exactly the same as Obadiah 5 and 6. Almost exactly the same wording. As God is condemning the sin of Edom, He is condemning them for their ruthlessness, for their greed, and this ruthlessness is going to come back on them.
0: How do you take verse 11, Pastor Poppy? It kind of comes out of nowhere. Leave your fatherless children, I will keep them alive. Let your widows trust in me. Is that the Lord interrupting this all this judgment with a, a promise, or is there something that I'm not seeing?
1: No, that's exactly what it is. Uh, he is, again, making his ongoing plea to repent. There is only one hope, and that is if you turn not to your riches, not to your Uh, outward security, your walls or your caves or anything like that. The only hope is to turn to the one true God. Turn to me, Yahweh, while there is time. I'm going to keep your widows and children alive. I'm going to provide. I am a God of justice. My justice is mercy and grace. That is who I truly am. Yes, I'm provoked to anger. I'm provoked to judgment. But mercy and grace is who I am. And so right in the middle of this um, uh, prophecy of destruction, God makes another plea, cling to me, turn to me.
0: He returns to the judgment language in verse 12, and we get a a familiar image from Jeremiah and elsewhere in the Scriptures. The Lord talks about drinking the cup. What's the image of drinking the cup? What's being communicated there?
1: Well, you know, we have the cup of wrath, and uh, God's Word talks about this in several places in Scripture. Uh, Probably the most famous is uh, in Isaiah 63, this cup of wrath imagery is also in the book of Obadiah. I sound like a like a broken record with coming back to Obadiah. But Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, talks about having the cup taken from him. This is the cup of wrath. God has Jesus drink the cup of wrath. Dregs and all, but to the very last drop. And he drinks the cup of wrath so that the cup of wrath is not poured out on us. So, whenever we see this cup of wrath imagery, we immediately think of the cup of wrath that Jesus drinks on our behalf. In uh, Paul Robbie's commentary on Obadiah, that's in the Anchor Bible series, uh, he has a marvelous excursus on this cup of wrath imagery and connecting it to jesus so if you have that book uh check that out and if you don't have it get it it is uh, well worth the price
0: well i mean the way verse 12 is written it certainly strikes me as as something we should connect to our lord where, where you know it starts if those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it i mean that's that's jesus right there he certainly didn't deserve to drink the cup but, but he does so willingly for the sake of you and me so that, you know, I mean, and I think we can connect this to the cup of, of blessing than in the Lord's supper, because the Lord Jesus has drunk the cup of God's wrath for us. He then gives us instead the cup of his blessing, which we receive quite truly when we partake of, of his Holy supper.
1: The, uh, the cup of wrath drank to the dregs by Jesus is now the cup of blessing, the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation that comes to us as we drink His body, or drink His blood and eat His body in the Holy Supper. Mm -hmm. That is the exact connection that God would have us make.
0: It's always amazing, you know, here we are in the middle of these sections of judgment making these connections to Christ, and then I have to come back to the the text here, verse 13, which, I mean, this is good. I mean, this is the word of the Lord, so we, we always want to keep that in mind. We have more talk of judgment from the Lord, this time for, for Basra. Do we know anything about Basra, Pastor Poppy?
1: Yes, uh, the, the name Basra literally means uh, sheepfold, oh. and it became kind of code word or a nickname for inaccessible. Uh, Basra was uh, a s- city built on a hill of solid rock. The uh, edges of the rock or the cliffs on the rock um, uh, were—there was no way to scale these. There was absolutely um, no way to get in. They were impenetrable. It's talked about, Basra is mentioned in a dozen places in uh, Scripture. It has strong, lofty walls, Obadiah 5, Isaiah 63— and the, the cup of wrath flowing into Basra is significant as well, because Basra, in this mountainous area, was known for its fertile hills and its vineyards. And what God is saying here, the fertility of your vineyards and your solid walls aren't going to protect you.
0: That's a that's a great connection to make to, between the Basra and its vineyards and the cup of the Lord in verse twelve. In verse fourteen, Jeremiah says, "I've I've heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations." What's the the purpose of the envoy that's being sent among the nations?
1: Well, it's uh, it's kind of a picture. Uh, this envoy language it's kind of a picture of an ambassador, and the Lord is sending these. Um, ambassadors on his behalf to the nations. And the message that he's giving to the nations is, I want you individually and collectively to attack Edom and destroy them. This is the message that God is sending out. They are unwilling dupes in God's plan. God is going to use these nations as as his tools, his instruments, to destroy those people in Edom who think that they are indestructible. Mm -hmm. And so these nations, without their own knowledge, they are carrying out God's plan. And God's plan and purpose is to humble, proud Edom. Uh, God is going to give success to Edom's enemies— and then these very enemies are going to face their own destruction. This is, uh, this is exactly how the book of Obadiah opens up. Obadiah 1 uh, covers this uh, beautifully.
0: Once again, there in that, that section with the envoy, you see the pride of Edom come up, just like there was pride in Ammon, so there's pride in, in Edom. They think they're safe there with the, in their clefts of the rock, and, and yet the Lord says, no, just like Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown, so you will be as well.
1: Uh, Psalm 20 says, uh, some trust in their horses and some trust in their chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord thy God. And uh, that's a great reminder. Uh, th- those wor- uh, words for horses and chariots, we can we can uh, transfer those to our money, our retirement plan, our political party. You know, what, whatever it is that we have made our God. Uh, let go of these false idols. And if you don't let go, God will love you enough to crush them. Mm.
0: And that's certainly what he's going to do here for Edom. And, and very, again, the, the imagery gets even stronger as the text continues. He brings up Sodom and Gomorrah there in verse 18. And then he, he speaks of, I think, this is the Lord in verse 19, speaking of himself coming as a lion out of the jungle, this sort of like sudden attack. And, and then I mean, he, he asks these very daunting questions. Who's like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? And and the answer is no one. This is, I mean, here we, we really see a picture that what's behind all of this judgment? It's more than just the you know, the political machinations of these nations that are gathering, as you said, Pastor Poppy, but this is the Lord who is doing this, bringing this judgment against Edom.
1: Yes, it may seem like it's the other nations uh, that are doing it, but behind it is uh, is the Lord. You know, I'm reminded of... Um... First Samuel 17, when uh, Goliath, on behalf of the Philistines, is mocking the uh, children of Israel and the God of Israel, mocking and mocking and mocking. And David, you know, hears this and says, come on, somebody go fight him. And when nobody will, he does. And he, he's a little boy. He doesn't have the strength and the power. He has no military training, not even any military armor. And he says, I'm going to tell you right now, after I defeat you and chop off your head, it wasn't me that did it. It was the Lord. And I think that's a lesson that we all need to be reminded of, that when the enemies attack us, we may, we may get weak-kneed. We may turn into cowards. But um, there is one who fights by our side. A mighty fortress is our God. And uh, he's the one that's going to be left standing on the plain. That, that is our God, who is the Lord of the nations, and that is the God who fights not only with us, but for us.
0: Mm. Uh, that, that's a good reminder as we think about, you know, who Edom was. Uh, we, we've talked about how within these oracles there is room for everyone to repent, that when we see the the destruction or, and the judgment on Ammon and Edom and all these other nations, it should be a reminder that we too need to repent. And yet we also should take take care to remember that there are times where our our enemies, who are quite real, attack us without mercy. And to see how God is the one who handles that for us, that should bring us great comfort. That may be another way to think about, about these sections for us today, is that we can see in them a picture of we know that— our enemies finally will be defeated. Those who mean us harm, and ultimately those who would try to draw us away from Christ, the Lord is going to defeat them on our behalf. And, and as we see him do it in rather vivid ways in a text like this, that should be a comfort to us, that that those enemies, though they attack, the Lord is stronger and he will protect us. As you said, the imagery from A Mighty Fortress fits in very perfectly there.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, this is... This is a, a situation, too, where we become so often feeble and weak need, and then when we do get courage, our courage is often misplaced. Uh, you know, we want revenge. We want evil to befall our enemies. And God says, uh, vengeance is mine. Uh, I'm the one saying that. Uh, you can take heart. I'll take care of the vengeance part. Cling to my word, cling to my promises, cling to the salvation that I provide. The, uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah imagery, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is completely wiped out, completely wiped out. That is how uh, total the destruction is that God brings. Now, what is that destruction for us? That is how, dis- how total the destruction is for our sin. Sin is totally destroyed. Jesus, as he bleeds on the cross, says, it is finished. When he rises from the dead, we are guaranteed that our sin died with Jesus once and for all. For all time, for all people, for our sin. God's destruction of sin is complete. Good Friday and Easter. And while we still live in this world that is tainted and corrupted with sin, when he returns again on the last day, heaven and earth as we know it, and all sin will ultimately be destroyed forever.
0: In the last couple of verses of our text today, Pastor Papa, we have the image of a, an eagle. And I, I'll say, when I, when I hear the image of eagle in Scripture, I usually think of the, the eagle's wings, the Lord is protecting us, he's lifting us up on eagle's wings, but here the image of the eagle is a one of judgment. Take us into those last couple of verses.
1: Yeah, well, if you've been to a wedding in a Roman Catholic Church, you can't help but have eagle's wings uh, <laughs> pounded into your heart and into your long-term memory. And uh, we, have, we have many of these beautiful, beautiful uh, pictures from Scripture, especially in Isaiah 40, of um, this majestic wings like eagles. Well, here we have a different picture of an eagle. And if you've ever seen an eagle soaring, And you're watching the eagle. We always have a big eagle migration through Nebraska every year. You're watching these eagles soaring, and it is majestic, and it is beautiful. And all of a sudden, like a dive bomber, this eagle swoops down, and there is some unsuspecting prey. Maybe it's a mouse, maybe it's a rabbit, maybe it's a pocket gopher, who knows what it is. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, seemingly, this eagle swoops down, grabs, kills, and eats the prey. That's the word picture that's here. Mm.
0: A very, very strong image that this text ends with. Pastor Papa, we've got about two minutes here on the morning, and we've, we've talked about a lot in these judgments against Ammon and Edom. As you reflect on the text and, and summarize it for us, how, how does a, a section like this, how does it point us to Christ? How do we make use of it as Christians today?
1: Um, our sin offends God, and God is rightly angered by our sin. God is a just God, and judgment is real. Uh, thanks be to God, the cup of wrath that we should drink, Christ drank for us. He has won for us the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. And in Christ Jesus, no matter what enemies attack us, we are safe and we are secure. The uh, first few verses of Isaiah 63 And I believe they're the Old Testament reading for Wednesday in Holy Week. So it's connecting us directly to the passion of Jesus Christ. Who is this that comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like his who treads the winepress, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. And it goes on. This is a picture of Jesus So when we see the nations destroying Edom and the blood of the Edomites because of their sin being spilled, we get a picture of this mighty avenger, the Messiah, the Christ, who has tread the winepress of our sin. His garments are stained not only with the blood of the nations, but with his own holy precious blood that he freely and willingly pours out, for our forgiveness and for our salvation. Salvation is full and free in Jesus Christ. He who has an ear let him hear. God always gives fair warning.
0: Pastor Clint Poppy is the pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 49 verses 1 to 22. Pastor Poppy, thanks so much for being our guest today.
1: Yeah, it's always a great honor. Thanks for having me, Tim.
0: I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. The series on Jeremiah is coming to a conclusion soon, but we'll be going into the book of Lamentations next. So if you have any questions about that book, things that we're going to encounter there, please get in touch with us. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app. The open mic feature there allows you to send up to a 60-second message to us. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.